Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we fuck up every first line. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of the podcast, which is it is complicated. Hello, Michelle and Dr. J. We've got a guest, Jay. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Somebody else in the room. Well, we should thank all the Patreon people for putting some money in so we can afford to do this and pay the guest for turning up. This is news to me. <laughs> I just wanted to talk to <laughs> some cool people. <laughs> That's the first time in my life I've ever been called cool, I think. Dr. Ooh. J, you are super cool. <laughs> they're not just cool they're super cool so welcome michelle hi do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the listener hi my name is michelle belcher i am part of the gaming industry although currently looking for work and i am focused on charity and raising money for a variety of charities through video games but right now i just am trying to raise money for me <laughs> And I'm a new member of the trans and queer community. I came out a little over a year ago, and this is all very new to me. Welcome, Michelle, in many ways. Welcome. I'm trying to be as cool as Dr. J over here. I'm not at the super level yet, but I'm trying to get there. You're not 16-bit yet, is what you're saying. No, no, no. 8-bit, maybe even Atari. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking to somebody who's got the physical movement of an 8-bit character because I walk with a stick. (laughs) One of the descriptions that I give to people at work of like, you've got to accept that I walk like an 8-bit character. I either go forward ways or I turn and turn and go forward ways um, while heading off to the side. I can't do diagonals. (laughs) Um, Jay, do you want to introduce yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Dr. Jay. I got to give myself the job title Harbinger of Change because I work at a software consultancy that allows somebody to do something like that. I also got to give myself the gender transgressive non-binary genderqueer because due to just sheer random luck, I was born in a country that also allows you to do that with a statutory declaration. I'm a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance, as if you couldn't tell by the previous two sentences, because branding. I also have a TEDx talk coming up, which will probably be either done or online about the time that we've done this talk. Please come along and watch me. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Josephine Baird. I am a scholar, activist, and artist. I used to make a spectacle of myself upon the stage, but now I tend to make a spectacle of myself by drawing pictures of queers and putting them on the internet, usually on my Instagram. I'm also a lecturer on game design at the University of Uppsala and a PhD candidate at the University of Vienna because, of course, I will not do things in a simple way. I also like to think of myself as queer with a purpose. What that purpose is, we do not know. I like how you're a woman of mystery. I like it there at the end. Like, mm, I'm up to something, but what am I up to? You figure it out. When I first came out, for example, I noticed that trans people often had to come out into different environments, that there were not these sort of usual coming out stories of like, I realized my sexuality was this, and then I connected with this community, and then I came out. It can be quite different for trans people, especially at different times and ages, and most especially right now. Because, Michelle, if you don't mind me sharing, you came out during 
pandemic and therefore also in lockdown. So you came out in a very unique set of circumstances. What we were really discussing was how interesting it is for like certain people like myself. I grew up in the Bible Belt. Um, it's very, very cis-normative, heteronormative, very anti-queer. Are either of y'all familiar with the Andy Griffith show? It's part of American television history that was one of the most wholesome TV shows you could find from the 1950s. It's really, really famous here in America. It was just kind of like gave a lot of people a personality to go with that everyone was like, this is right. This is how we're supposed to be from the 50s on. And I'm from there. I'm from Mount Airy. Because of that, our town all the way up until now even, is just trying really hard to keep this wholesome, cis-normative, heteronormative appeal. And it's really hard to be queer in that community. It's really hard to be anything but a white man in that community. For me, growing up in that community, I very much felt like, oh, well, I can never be who I am <laughs> just because that's home. And it's still home for me, even though I rarely go back. But because of finally accepting myself and finally coming out and living that life and not associating with queer people or queer culture or anything of that norm, now that I'm out and I'm here, I'm struggling a lot with just making sure that I, not just to, I don't want to hurt people. And I have a lot of bad habits because of that. Like getting past this point, it's something that I continue to work on. And I think that's different for someone who just may have had a queer person in their life, maybe someone to jump in and be like, hey, while you're five or 10 or something, maybe even in your teens go, hey, this isn't cool. Instead of like me coming out when they turn 35 which is, you know, at that point, you've, you're pretty set in a lot of habits. There seems to be a lot of people coming out publicly from that same kind of viewpoint. And I'm thinking of ContraPoints. I'm thinking of Philosophy Tube. I'm thinking of people who are coming from a straightest, more cisnormative background are now jumping to the transizing rather than coming through some queer, which to me kind of says there's more ability for people who've grown up in a much more normative, socialized in a more normative part of the normative culture, being able to think about themselves, being able to be given the space to consider the stuff and seeing themselves as something outside of that group. I know that when I grew up as a child and as a teenager, I was in a very cisnormative, heteronormative, quite homophobic environment. So I can totally relate to that. And I always feel now like I look back and I'm like, I came out at 24, 25. If I was growing up now, I would be out at about 12. Mm -hmm. I was that queer. It was that obvious to everyone. It's always been that obvious. It's just people don't have the language or anything like that to say, hey, this is what you might be, or have you thought about this? Or, hey, it's cool to be this queer. It's cool to be this different, and you're going to be okay. You don't have to try to fit into this box. And I think there's almost a thing now of there's a lot of younger people who haven't had to bust their way out of that heteronormative box, who haven't been told by where they grew up and everything like that, that what they are is not okay. You need to be something else. 
if you haven't had that pressure and had to grow against it, you may not understand what it's like to have grown up with that. You may set expectations that are unrealistic for somebody who says, I'm trans and everyone's like, oh, you're going to be this. And you're like, "Uh, actually, I'm still at level 0.1. I'm still figuring out the controllers here. I haven't quite figured (laughs) out how the language of platforming works or whatever it is. That's exactly like one of the things that my experience reflected. I knew I was trans when I was 15 years old. As soon as I got the internet and I learned what trans people were, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's a thing. I just was like, I thought I was a girl and no one, that was an impossible dream. That's where I was before that point in time. And after that, once I knew it was an option, it was just like this seed that just festered and festered. And it's funny you mentioned 24 years old. That's actually when I moved away from Mount Airy, North Carolina, and I moved to San Diego, California. And it was my first experience around a queer community, so much so that when I came back, I lived there for about eight months. When I came back, I was prepared to come out. I was making like all the plans that you make in your head to come out. And the only reason why I didn't at that point was I fell in love with someone and I was scared of losing them. So it took me another 12 years later, but I always wanted to, and that seed growed. And I've been thinking about this for 20 years. (laughs) I've done all the research on like any possible surgery I want, but what I didn't do was I didn't put myself into the culture to learn a, the history, all that stuff has been, you know, a big learning process. One of the things that I'm getting really tired of reading on the internet, and unfortunately I spent a great deal of time there, is it's an old notion with a new name called rapid onset gender dysphoria that people are using now by certain parents and certain groups that you just don't want to be associated with, who insist Mm. that their children are suddenly springing out as trans, and that's the rapid onset bit, and then the gender dysphoria because they don't want to humanize them and give them a name like trans. They gave this long phrase to this notion to make it sound legitimate. By the way, it isn't. I'm an academic. I can tell you five different ways how it isn't. But the truth is, it's this notion that parents are suddenly having this experience with kids coming out sooner with more knowledge and with more clarity. And they're going, how do they have all this knowledge? This, they must have gotten it from their friends. They must have had this terrible influence. And it's like, no, how could they be so sure so quickly? It must be something that they've just picked up and it must be the new fashionable thing. And it's like, no, what's happened is exactly what Michelle said. They've been thinking about this for a really long time so that when they come to you and say, hi, I'm trans and I know all about it because they've been thinking about it for years and they've probably gone online and read about it and they've probably gone and found the few resources that they had access to, which are now many, many more that you can have access to the Internet. When I was coming up, there were anywhere near as many resources and information. So I was coming out initially in an environment where the information I got about being trans came from pamphlets that you got in gay bars. I would buy a book that had trans stuff in it to tell you how to do it because the the information just wasn't there. And so I had to access it different ways. I had to access it through different queer communities. And because I was an academic at the time, I was thinking like, I wonder how trans people 
access this information in this day and age? Like, do they go through other queer communities? And I realized that a lot of trans women I knew kind of went through the fetish and BDSM community because that was a very accepting environment where they could experiment. A lot of the trans men I knew had gone through lesbian communities and butch communities in some ways because there they were able to experiment. But that that has changed quite radically over the last few years when with more access to information, with more access to support networks, which means that it's more accessible to people from different environments. And I think, Jay, I think your hypothesis is entirely plausible. This idea that people who don't have to go through another community to get to being trans can now access that information more directly you still need to find a safe space, which is really tragic that you still have to do that. Kids are still having to come out to non-tolerant parents and in environments where misinformation is rife, sadly. But the access is better, at least I, in principle. I think it's more than just access. There's also language. Like one of the things that I feel always held me back was I didn't know the words to have the thoughts because you can't have the thoughts without the vocabulary. I'm totally Noam Chomsky on that one. I could have all of these thoughts that I wasn't something, but I didn't know what I was. And I didn't really know that it was possible not to be that. That was presented as the only option. And then as I started to look at the different things, trans never felt like me although people would kind of assume that I was there in some communities that I've started to come into, especially early in London, there was some assumption that I was a trans man who was trying to come out. So people would kind of try and point me in the right directions or try and offer me advice. But having that language, and I think one of the big things now is it's not just the access to resource, it's a proliferation of these ideas and this language that's allowed younger and younger children to go I am potentially this thing and I'll present you some words and somebody can go hey yes you might be that thing let's talk about what you mean by those words and you can actually start to explore it which is how I'm transgressive non-binary gender queer not transmasculine or non-binary or I've got this whole sentence because it's trying to describe what it feels like inside my head in words that people seem to be able to pretty much grasp enough that they go, yeah, I think I can kind of get where you're coming from and we can have a discussion. Whereas when I was 24, there just wasn't that language. And when I was 14, there was definitely not that language. New Zealand was in the realms of effectively where Ghana is at the moment, where India was a couple of years back, starting to repeal that 377 colonial law that was on our books about being an ex-British colony. There's a sodomy law that's on many Commonwealth country statute books, and it's usually 377, and it's the one that it criminalizes sodomy. And when you start to repeal that, the discussion comes public about what sexualities are allowed or what sexualities are allowed within the society. And you then start to get a lot of language being used. It may be pejorative terms or terms used in a pejorative way, but you can still see terms and go, actually, that thing that people are talking about, I kind of identify with that person a little bit. And although I'm told that they're bad, this language is helping me formulate who I might be. 
you have to fight a lot of internal stuff to have that conversation, but at least you're starting to get the language. At least you're starting to get the ideas and the words to express those ideas so that you can start to have that conversation with yourself or with other people. You two both hit on some really great points. Specifically, I feel like Josephine, all of your comments were very fixated on community. And Dr. J, you're talking about how the terminology has grown. And that was my favorite thing about coming out. When I came out, A, I had a community all of a sudden, very accepting, very helpful. But what was actually the most exciting thing was what Dr. J is talking about. I knew I was a trans woman. That's all I knew. I didn't know about gender fuckery, gender fluid, non-binary, all these other aspects, all these ideas, all these thoughts. And my favorite thing is all these younger people who are just like, fuck it, let's explore this. Let's go as far as we can. And like, if one person is a gender and that's the only person that reflects that, that's still something that should be respected, whether you relate to it or not. And I love that right now. And As someone like myself, I came out during COVID. My main outlet right now with this community is Twitter. And that's actually how Josephine and I became friends. And on top of all of that, I'm just seeing all these amazing people who are just like, you know what, all these boundaries and all these areas where I would never cross. I'm excited to learn these new things and finally be myself. I'm friends with a 78-year-old non-binary person. Well, they thought they were a trans man for a long, long time, but that's not who they are. And they finally are like, no, they finally are at this point where like, I'm not a woman. I'm not a trans man. I'm this. This feels right. When you see someone finally find that moment of just like clarity, it's a beautiful thing. And the terminology is how you get there. The terminology means everything in a lot of ways, because if there is nothing to describe who you are, you can't figure out who you are. As much as I want to not put everyone in little holes, the word makes it real. And it's an amazing feeling. And that's something that I've been experiencing a lot with this past year and a lot of growth in that area. I was questioning when I came out, it was really funny. I came out as a trans woman and I was questioning like shit am I? (laughs) And I came full circle back around. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. But I definitely, you know, was like, am I non-binary? Am I gender fluid? What is going on? And I think that had more to do with the fact that I just spent 35 years playing this masculine role. And it was really hard for me to give that up. Like whether or not it was not who I wanted to be, that's who I was. So there is a giving up the past that you have to go through. And there is some sorrow with that. And, but it doesn't matter because I can be those things and still be a woman. God, I'm so impressed, Michelle. I've never heard you put it that way. It's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) No, it's really, really great. And you summed up so much of what I was thinking and I'm just, I'm a little, I'm a little, wonderful. I'm so happy for you. It's great. Me too. I love being happy for me. <laughs> it's new. No, but it's, it's that notion of having a word for who you are. Now, that's the problem. We've talked a little bit about that. Sometimes a word can be really positive because it gives legitimacy or some sort of notion of 
A, I'm not the only one. B, here is a word from my experience that I can now talk about and use to reference myself in. And that's really self-actualizing and validating. Of course, the flip side of that that I always get concerned about is that words can sometimes constrict as well. That being a trans woman means you are this thing. And I wonder if you were coming up against some of that friction, because I remember when I came out, trans wasn't the word that we were using for us as a community. It didn't exist in that form. The words that existed were the medicalized words that were being used even by our own community. So most often it was transsexual or transvestite. Transgender was just about a word that was happening at the time. It became something of an umbrella term and something like non-binary. It was still being defined. And I found when I came out, I was like, I was having a really hard time defining as what we'd now call trans because I was like, I'm not a transsexual because I'm not this narrow definition of what that means. At the time, it meant a very specific kind of experience. It had a very specific story attached to it. You had to have this one experience in a medicalized setting. If I wanted to go get surgery and hormones treatment, I was going to have to present a story that matched that word. I would have to go in and say, first off, I'm a heterosexual, transsexual woman who only wants surgery and I don't want to ever have a job and I want to be at home with a white picket fence and a husband who loves me and I never want to tell anybody that I was ever anything else. And I was like, I'm not that person. And so weirdly, the word that I found that actually fit my experience was femme. It wasn't trans. And I actually identified as femme first. I didn't use the word trans because it didn't exist. I didn't like the word transsexual because it didn't apply to me. Transvestite certainly didn't. Transgender was close, but not quite right. But femme did. I was like, huh, this reinscription of femininity in a queer way. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> so I was like, I don't know what else I am, but I'm femme. And then when trans became more of an open term to refer to more experience, or it felt like it was a more open term to me. I mean, there were people who were advocating for this that I hadn't read yet because the internet didn't quite exist. And yes, I'm old. But when trans came... Not as old as me. Well, Not as can, old as me. The truth is when trans came as a concept in a more general way, I started to think of trans as a word that could be applied in a much broader sense. And then I was like able to say, okay, I'm a trans femme woman. And that word now made sense to me. I think one of the things with words is that when you find the right word, it's like finding the right jacket. Your heart sings. You put on something and suddenly you go, yeah, this. And there's just that moment, you know, I have a collection of hoodies and I put on a hoodie and there are some days I put on the hoodie and I'm like, yeah, this is me. This works. I also think there's something around the notion of non-binary. Beth was talking to me about trying to understand what non-binary meant and talking to me about other non-binary people that they know. And I said, non-binary for me isn't being in between two things. It's being completely divorced from that gender binary. Now that's what it means to me. And that's why I use transgressive non-binary gender queer. The transgressive part is like, there's a gender binary with men on one side and women on the other, and you can move or you can sit in the middle do what you want with it. I don't care about it. I don't feel part of this notion of it, but I do have a relationship with masculine and feminine or mask and femme. And I like to play around with those because I know that I quite easily slip between those, but I don't see those as being part of the gender binary. 
there are aspects that you can play with at any point in time. One of my great heroes is Quentin Crisp for their notion of femininity and the way that they played with that femininity, with that campness, with the long hair and the purple and the lipstick and the velveteen clothes and the flamboyance around whether or not they were a gay man or not a gay man and what they actually were was always left as a bit more of a question. And the men that I always identified with were always wonderfully flamboyant and wonderfully different and effeminate in some ways or mixed up that mask and femme in interesting ways. My notion of what is masculine is really not based on the straightness of masculinity. It was always those totally flamboyant, almost neuromantics. I've been listening to the wonderful Insane Animals by Bourgeois Maurice, which is a full-length musical based on Gilgamesh and pointing out that there is, in fact, a queer love story at the heart of it. We have been around since the very first time that people started telling stories. Josephine is about to wave a book at us, which would be wonderful. But this was the first time that I'd heard it because I've been reading back and then there was another thing that came through today on a podcast that I was listening to about how Roman and Greek masculinity and the way that it was perceived where sexuality was seen very, very differently and Mm. gay sex or what we now call gay sex or sex between two people identifying as men was seen in an entirely different context in an entirely different way. And I just found all of that completely fascinating. I could bring up Foucault right now. I'm dying to because I'm an Must academic. You. I might have to because Foucault talks about the power of definition and specifically talks about how, for example, heterosexuality did not exist before homosexuality. Heterosexuality was the second definition homosexuality was defined first because you couldn't define heterosexuality without its opposite and the opposite had to be defined first and that was homosexuality it used to be homosexuality if you look at the history in terms of like laws when it came to for example the law you just mentioned jay that it was about homosexual acts that were illegal not the identity so if you look at the horrible ghana situation right now the law says that you cannot have sex between two men it doesn't say it's illegal to be gay Foucault said it was about the creation of a notion of a gay identity. And that was the big shift. We moved away from the notion that certain acts couldn't be considered that way to an identity that we considered that way. And actually, he was like, no, you can only have a notion of homosexuality first. Heterosexuality follows because heterosexuality is the norm and therefore is unnamed. It's like whiteness. Whiteness is invisible in our community because it's not the other. That's why the other is defined always first. It's just so weird to me how we come to those norms. Well, a norm is established in order to set a certain power relationship and it's always set in opposition. And that's the point. That's why I'm so concerned about Mm -hmm. becoming not necessarily a definition that could allow you to include yourself, but becomes a definition that allows people to exclude others. I see. Okay. You know what I mean? So like, if you're saying that trans is this, that, can and almost immediately will exclude certain experience i find that really difficult because i don't want it to so i would like a word that is as porous as possible while still remaining useful and so 
when it comes to words and terminology, it's about their practical function. But yes, in terms of like theory, if you're going to look into theory of semantics and theory of language, it's always the other that's defined first because the norm mm. is assumed to be the norm. But the book I was going to wave at you is this book, which is Video Games Have Always Been Queer by Bo Ruberg. It's a fabulous book because it does what we were talking about history and applies it to recent history as in recent cultural artifacts, video games, and says even those games that you think are super normative and cis-normative, they're all super queer, actually. And if you look at them in a certain way, in a certain lens, you can find that video games were always queer. The example that they like to use is Octodad. Octodad is a game in which you are an octopus who is tasked with the goal of hiding in cis-normative 50s-esque suburbia as a dad. And so you have a suit on, but you're an octopus and you have to walk around doing dad things. So like, I will do the, I will mow the lawn. But of course, because you've got tentacles and not arms, it becomes comically ridiculous. Bo Reberg, of course, makes the analogy, well, isn't that an interesting sort of notion of gender conformity and gender troubling and transitioning and identity production? And here we are, video games have always been queer. <laughs> and it allows for the redefinition of those terms that we would consider normative and even those histories that we would consider normative, those cultural artifacts we would consider normative. And so part of that particular kind of transgression and insidiousness that I particularly like is not just creating words that include all of us, but inhabiting words that pre-existed our personal existence and changing them by our inclusion. So I call myself a woman explicitly because that category changes by my mere inclusion in it that word changes because trans woman exists within it and that's really important to me this past weekend my parents came to see me for the first time since i came out and i had to explain a lot of things and trying to find the right terminology for them to understand was really hard it was a difficult thing and i'm very lucky to have the parents that I have. My mom had some issues right at first and awkward questions right at first, inappropriate questions, things like that. And I don't want to go through that because I don't want to talk shit on her. But it was one of the things where I'm just like, a lot of the things they said made me really scared for coming out as when I was growing up. They said some very homophobic things, very transphobic things. For them, it was in jest. But it was not hateful to them, but it still made me scared as a, a child growing up. I was like, well, I can't be that thing. I, that's a joke. And I had to explain that to them. They never wanted to be hurtful and they loved me just the same. But it was definitely like a lot of crying and a lot of explaining. What is really interesting is seeing how much fear that I used to have now envelop in them because they've never known this fear and now they see all the fears i've had from everything that i grew up around and they're just like you don't have to come here we'll come see you and i'm like oh okay like i get it but that's not what i was expecting and it's just so wild to see like where i hope that if they interact with anyone in that their community which is very homophobic very transphobic that they might be like you know that's not cool and 
that has been probably one of my favorite things about coming out is that my parents have been just like not cool with it per se but just like accepting i can understand what it's like growing up and being part of that community that's constantly not had good exposure to queer not had good exposure to trans not had good exposure to gay you've always heard about it in the media and it's coming across as something that you wouldn't want someone to be and you make jokes about it and then somebody you love says actually I am this thing and that forces people to kind of reconsider so much it's like an earth shaking thing and I think some people double down and go no I can't I'm too afraid I'm too scared of what might happen I'm too scared of what I will go through but they also want to protect their child from and I'm not saying that all homophobic parents or all transphobic parents are doing that solely to protect their children but I think it's driven from fear it's driven from fear of the unknown but also it's driven from fear of the known because your parents surely read the papers they see the things they see the transphobia and homophobia in the world um my parents did do the double down at first I think like at first it didn't come across very well To be fair, my mom also found out while we were playing Animal Crossing together one time, and she was just like, who's Michelle? And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) 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 I guess I have to explain this. It wasn't a planned coming out. When I did finally come out to them, it was very just like, there was a lot of just like hurtful things said, hurtful things done. And I, I think they realized... And this may be because COVID helped, maybe it hurt. I'm not sure yet, but I withdrew from them and our relationship because I just didn't want that hurtful feeling, which was hurtful in and of itself, but that was my protection. And I think they realized that there was only one way to go for them to still have their child in their life. And I'm not saying that that's the right way, the wrong way, but like it deeply affected them that, oh, their only child is now this. They have to back this or now they're childless in their own heads. That's what I'm assuming they thought. And after a few months of that and the loneliness of that, I think they finally were like, okay, we have to try. And they did. They did try. And I feel like a lot of the issues that we had were resolved. And I think my mom just like, even this, like the last things he said to me before she told me she loves me was just like, are you sure? But I am about to get a surgery that is not very reversible. And they were just like, are you sore? And I was just like, yeah, (laughs) easily, (laughs) like no hesitation. So they were just like, okay, okay. And that was it. I don't think we're going to talk about it like that again, but we needed this face-to-face to do that. I think we've covered a really interesting topic that is probably going to require lots more discussion. And to that end, we very well may have another episode with Michelle that follows this one next week. So we're going to get on to recording that. But in the meantime, I get to ask my two friends this very important question that if you weren't here last week, dear listener, we've decided to change the question that we're asking at the end of (laughs) Michelle's already laughing. We've decided to change the question at the end of our episode. We were feeling that the question about a certain British author has been fruitfully answered 
by several other wonderful YouTube essayists in the form of Lindsay Ellis and ContraPoints. Links have been provided. And so we've come up with a new and highly pertinent question to ask. And we feel that this has a, an ongoing cultural relevance and therefore we will ask this regularly in the podcast and we hope that this will prompt a very interesting conversation. So Michelle, Dr. J, next week when we're very likely to be talking again about another topic, would you like that topic to be Keanu Reeves being breathtaking? Absolutely, without a doubt. I think that is a <laughs> wonderful topic and I would love to go down deep dive into everything Keanu Reeves has done. <laughs> dear listener, we'll be talking about Keanu Reeves being breathtaking and or something else next week with the dear Michelle and Dr. J and myself. Thank you for listening. And uh, <laughs> fuck this. <laughs>